When we celebrate Palm Sunday, we're shining a light on a very specific and important event in the life of Jesus and of his disciples. This day represented a time in the life of Jesus when he had clearly decided to demonstrate his faith in a particularly visible and public way, and that was by entering Jerusalem with a little bit of fanfare. Now, before that happened, he and his disciples, it seems, had gathered at the Mount of Olives, which is a high ridge running along the eastern side of Jerusalem. They gathered at a place called Bethphage. The author Stanley Hauerwas suggests that Jesus and his disciples used this as a staging area for their march towards Jerusalem. This was the season of Passover. The city would have been jammed with pilgrims. There would have been extra soldiers on duty so that uh, if any unrest should have arisen, they would have been there to suppress it. From their staging area, Jesus and his disciples would have moved towards the city. Jesus eventually sitting on a donkey, people waving branches and palms, throwing their cloaks on the ground as an uh, expression of reverence, and Jesus, of course, getting closer and closer to the city. This marks the beginning of the last week of Jesus' life and, many, and all of the horrifying events that happened during that time. But at this point, for the procession that entered Jerusalem, there was an air of celebration and I think that the sense of hopefulness was palpable among those in the crowd who were there that day. There are several versions of this story in our New Testament, but the one I'm going to share with you today is from the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. When they had come near Jerusalem and had reached Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately you will find a, coat, a donkey tied, and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, just say this, the Lord needs them, and he will send them immediately. This took place to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet, saying, tell the daughter of Zion, look, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put their cloaks on them, and he sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and that followed were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest heaven! When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in turmoil, asking, who is this? The crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. In the name of God, the Creator, the Christ, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Desmond Tutu grew up in South Africa. When he and his wife were young adults, they studied and trained to be teachers. But eventually, Desmond Tutu felt drawn to the ministry. So he was ordained as a priest in the Anglican Church. He and his family moved to England for a time where he had a chance to study. Uh, it was the first time they were able to experience as people of color a society that was at least moving towards racial inclusion. They felt free for the first time in their lives, unburdened by the systems of segregation that were so dominant in the, their home country of South Africa. 
When Desmond Tutu eventually returned to South Africa, he continued to serve churches as an Anglican priest. He taught at a theological college for a while. He was eventually given the position of bishop and ultimately Archbishop of Cape Town. Though he didn't like the term Archbishop, he said, just call me Arch. Right up to the time of his death in 2021, Desmond Tutu was a persistently courageous advocate for human rights, speaking out on behalf of vulnerable people all across the world. I heard him speak once when I was living in New York City in the 1980s, at a time when he was working with others to focus international attention on the policies of racial segregation in his home country of South Africa known as apartheid. Although he was a justice warrior, there was nothing humorless about him. He was full of passion and joy and humor, even when he was talking about very serious things. I remember telling, uh, him telling us that when someone in South Africa would say to him, you know, I don't really want to get involved in all of this racial strife. This was usually a, a comment coming from a white Afrikaner. Uh, you know, this person would say, I, I feel like I need to stay neutral. Um, Desmond Tutu would say to that person, you know, when an elephant has its foot on the tail of a mouse, and the mouse looks at you and says, I could use a little help here. And you say, I don't want to take sides. I want to stay neutral. The mouse will not appreciate your neutrality. In that same speech, Desmond Tutu told us about a time when he was preaching in Cape Town Cathedral, packed congregation. And without warning, members of the South African police force burst into the sanctuary an act designed to intimidate and terrorize the people who had gathered for worship that day. Master of the pivot, Archbishop Desmond Tutu veered away from his message and he addressed the intruders. He said, you have to understand that you have already lost. Apartheid is doomed. It is already over. Apartheid is not God's dream for the people of the world, for the people of South Africa. The dream of God for the people of South Africa is inclusion and justice. And then he started to dance, swirling around the pulpit and then down into the congregation among the people and all who were there that day rose up in a spirit of celebration. It would take several years for state-sponsored apartheid to be dismantled, but on that day, in that cathedral, Desmond Tutu had already declared victory for justice. When Jesus entered Jerusalem at the beginning of the last week of his life, there was a similar intermingling of protest and celebration in the air. I don't know if anyone danced, but Jesus rode into the city on a donkey, which must have been kind of an eye-catching sight. His disciples sang an old hymn, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, and the crowd joined in. People shouted and threw branches in a first century version of the red carpet. Maybe it wasn't all that majestic, but it showed that Jesus had come to the realization that the time was right for a demonstration, a public demonstration of peace, a public demonstration of humility. And he planned it all carefully. He sent two of his disciples ahead of he and the rest of the disciples to go into Jerusalem to find a donkey and a colt, 
to bring them back so they could be used as part of the procession that day. And by entering the city of Jerusalem during Passover, when tensions would have been running high as a result of the city being jammed with pilgrims and soldiers from the Roman garrison being on guard, he would have known that Pontius Pilate, the Roman appointed governor of that region, would also be entering the city at the same time, but for very different reasons. Not to give hope, but to stifle unrest. Not to liberate, but to dominate. In their book, The Last Week, authors Marcus Borg and John Dominic Crossan talk about the way that Pontius Pilate and Jesus were placed in a kind of collision course during this Passover season. At each Passover, they write, the Roman governor Pilate rode up to Jerusalem from the imperial capital Caesarea on the coast at the head of a cohort of imperial cavalry and troops to reinforce the Roman garrison in Jerusalem as a deterrent for any possible trouble. Pilate's procession arriving from the west symbolized and actualized Roman imperial power. Jesus entered the city from the east, from the Mount of Olives, in another procession, a counter-procession. Whereas Pilate rode into the city on a war horse, Jesus entered on a donkey. The contrast is clear, they say. Jesus versus Pilate. The nonviolence of the kingdom of God versus the violence of empire. Two arrivals, two entrances, two processions. These two processions, so very different in many ways, were nevertheless very much alike in one respect. Each was a demonstration of power. The question, of course, what kind of power? For Pilate, the power at his disposal was a force to quell rebellion, to keep a subjugated people in place. And the Romans were generous with the brutality they used to suppress any movement towards freedom. For Jesus, the power at his disposal was a force to heal, a spiritual power, to restore dignity to those who had lost it, to invite those without means to see themselves as the salt of the earth and the light of the world. My guess is that Every one of us listening to or part of this message has been on the receiving end of those two different kinds of power. We can probably point to a time in our lives when someone treated us poorly, abusing their position or their authority. We can also, I'm sure, point to times when others use the power at their disposal, their resources, their life itself, to build us up and to strengthen us when we need it at most. Maybe with a little bit of thought, you and I can think of times where we have abused power and also used it well. No wonder there was a special energy in the air as Jesus and his ragtag band of merrymakers made their way towards the gates of their precious Jerusalem and all that awaited them there. Which is not to say that everyone appreciated this modest parade. Some religious leaders were there also observing, concerned about the way that Jesus' procession would stir up some agitation and catch the attention of the Roman authorities. So they urged Jesus to tone it down, get your people under control, but he wouldn't have any of it. If these are silent, he said, 
pointing to his disciples and all the people who had milled around as part of the parade, the stones will cry out. As if to say, some people may not get what's going on here, but creation does. The power of God is a power to love, to forgive, to sacrifice, to start again, and it's baked into creation. And if we won't shout it out, then the rocks will. 60 years ago, this coming Friday, another prophetic figure had to contend not just with the deeply entrenched policies and patterns of discrimination of his time, but also with the compliance and the reluctance, the moderation of people who didn't want things to be disturbed in the interest of justice. It was 60 years ago, this Friday, 1963, that was the year that Martin Luther King Jr. was arrested in Birmingham, Alabama. And it was during that time that he wrote his famous essay, Letter from Birmingham Jail. Now, Dr. King, like Jesus, was addressing leaders who wanted to go slow, to be diplomatic, not to ruffle people's feathers. So while he was in jail, Dr. King smuggled some notes that he had written on a newspaper and loose sheets of paper. Uh, they were smuggled out by a sympathetic guard, and these eventually were collected into this document called Letter from a Birmingham Jail. And in this letter, he says, you deplore the demonstrations taking place in Birmingham, but I am sorry to say you failed to express similar concern for the conditions that brought about the demonstration. I must confess that I am not afraid of the word tension. I've earnestly opposed violent tension. I've earnestly opposed violent tension, but there is a type of constructive nonviolent tension which is necessary for growth. We who engage in nonviolent direct action are not the creators of tension. We merely bring to the surface the hidden tension that is already there. The thread that connects Jesus, Martin Luther King Jr., Desmond Tutu, and us, and people of faith and hope and love all across the world and over the centuries, is a commitment to values that are designed to build up rather than to destroy, to bind together rather than to rip apart, to unite rather than to divide. It's always a search for a common cause for the common good. In other words, to be a person of faith is to be very interested in power. Over the past few years, I would say that our unofficial statement of faith at Round Hill Community Church can be captured in six words, to be a force for good. A force for good. Not a little trickle of good, not a half-hearted hope, but an all-in kind of dedication, which the great prophet Amos talked about, uh, ever-flowing streams of justice. It's the way that we understand and use power that makes all the difference about the kind of world that we are creating. In the story of Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem, there is a word used to describe the way he displayed power that day. It's the Greek word praus. It's usually translated as gentleness. 
he came into the city gentle, riding on a donkey, in other words, a symbol of humility, a servant leader. Now, I can't personally remember the last time I heard the word gentle used in relationship to a political leader, but when that word was used in relationship to Jesus, it had a very distinctive meaning. According to one translator, it indicates a demonstration of power without harshness. I love that phrase. A demonstration of power without harshness. So when an adult protects a child from harm, even to the point of risking life to do so, that's praus. That's a demonstration of power, of the best possible kind. When a Christian congregation stands alongside a local Jewish synagogue when the rhetoric of anti-Semitism begins to be invoked, as it is more and more these days, that's an example of praus, a kind of power that's being exercised to collaborate and enter into solidarity with others when they need it most. When a teenager thinks about sending a nasty message on some social media platform to, to hurt someone else, to diminish them in some way, and then has second thoughts about that, begins to consider, no, I'm not going to do that after all. That's praus. That's a constructive use of power. Choosing not to use power to harm, but rather to leave be, to give someone else their freedom. Connecticut Against Gun Violence is an organization that has worked so hard to promote and ensure safety from gun violence for Connecticut citizens and those beyond the borders of our state. They are always exercising praus. It's a demonstration of power without harshness. It's designed to create a safer world for all, especially for our children. And I think about the work of of organizations like Connecticut Against Violence, Sandy Hook Promise, especially in the wake of the most recent gun violence in Nashville, the loss of three children and three adults. We mourn their deaths, but how will we utilize our power to ensure the safety of others going forward? We've been given the gift of this power. Jesus exercised it himself and gave it freely away to his disciples and all those who seek to live in his name. How will we use our power to demonstrate hope? Jesus described himself as humble and gentle. And he demonstrated that the day that he entered Jerusalem. He put it on full public display. He offered that spirit to a city. And I think that same spirit reaches out to us today. Is there some place in our lives where we would love to let the power of God's gentleness reach us. Maybe it's a place that we're, uh, where we're very vulnerable and yet where we need a healing touch, a place where we need hope or encouragement with the encouragement with the addition of some infusion of new strength. Where is that place in our lives and can we be open enough and vulnerable enough to let that spirit of humility and gentleness touch us? And if we can receive gentleness in that way, do we also have an idea about how we might utilize our lives and our resources to bring to the world the same demonstration of gentleness and kindness that Jesus brought to his? 
some way of offering a demonstration of power without harshness. Recently, I've been reading a wonderful book called Undistorted God by Ray Waddle, who wrote the religion column for many years for the Nashville Tennessean and is currently the editor of a journal called Reflections, uh, which uh, is housed at the Yale Divinity School. And in this book, uh, he talks about the extraordinariness of the time in which we live, but also of the, of the severe challenges that we face. He says this remarkable era of opportunity, exhilaration, and sensation is also known by other words, exhaustion, inequality, rage, savagery. These things, he says, deserve defiance, not compliance. So that when we sense inequality, when we sense injustice, it's no time for compliance, rather for defiance. I think that on the day of his entrance into the city of Jerusalem, Jesus was demonstrating a kind of defiance. Instead of using that phrase, it is what it is, Jesus essentially was saying with every ounce of his imagination on that day, it can be otherwise. As if to say, Roman domination is not here forever. And he was right. Eventually, Roman domination would recede. Christianity would become the religion of the Roman Empire. Very few could have seen that coming during Jesus' lifetime, but he had a vision of what was possible. Just like Desmond Tutu could stand in the Cape Town Cathedral when members of the South African police force were there and say to them, it's only a matter of time you have already lost. Apartheid is going to be dismantled. When we use our power to build collaborations around issues and causes that matter to us, like the safety of children in our nation, when we use our power to gather people in response to what troubles us and imagine possible directions and then begin taking them, then we can look at the worst of what troubles us and say it can be otherwise. When we see the news and we despair and we walk away, don't walk away. Let's think to ourselves, it can be otherwise. What step can we take to move that in a spirit of defiance, not compliance? I believe that the same spirit that gave Jesus the courage to enter Jerusalem and demonstrate his love for the world against one of the most unjust and brutal systems and regimes the world has ever known, that spirit is as available to us as it was to him. It can be otherwise. Let's demonstrate that spirit and that love in every possible way, now and for the future. Amen.